0: Welcome to Working Code with your three hosts who never make off-by-one errors, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim.
1: Okay, here we go. This is show number 10 for February the 17th, and on today's show, I believe we're going to be talking about scaling. We'll get to that, Uh, but first we're going to do our triumphs and fails, and Carol, I'm going to come to you first this week. What do you got?
0: Sweet. So um, I don't really know if you call this a triumph or a failure yet. So you guys kind of got to help me figure it out. So I told you about the project I got put on with my two design buddies who were working on this big effort, right? Mm-hmm. So I spent a couple of hours writing some code that just basically, you know, found out if some values were unique. And if it was, it let the unique value remain. Otherwise, it just forced the user to make a change. It was like, okay, we can't determine what is accurate. So you have to figure that out. And I put it up and I'm like, hey, it's out there. Move on to something else. And then I get a ping that's like, hey, can we talk about the code you just (laughs) submitted? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's talk about it. So yeah, we were just thinking that we could go, if it's this, good. If not, then that. Then we're good to go, right? I was like, yeah, you probably could do that. I was just trying to get it pretty accurate. And the two of them were like, yeah, I think we could just go the other way. And I was <laughs> like, all right, cool. I will take my code out. And I guess my, my triumph feeling is that I didn't cry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, cool. I'll just rip it out and put an if statement here, and I'm good to go. And at yeah. the end of it, I was like, it's fine. Actually, it's doing the exact same thing, just a lot less complex than what I wrote. Yeah. So I didn't cry when I had to remove my code.
2: <laughs> so were you trying to be a little too fancy in their opinion? I mean, what was the reason that just an if statement sufficed?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was that it was doing more than was actually needed. Mm-hmm. And the situation where this would ever happen was almost never going to happen, <laughs> except with my mock data, which caused it to happen. <laughs> so if it's never going to happen, then we're good to just assume yeah. it's never going to happen.
1: I, I listen to another podcast that is uh, all the people on it are uh, video creators. or like YouTube personalities, and they're all in woodworking. And they talk about sometimes how they have to murder their babies, right? So they um, you know, they they That's make the project terrible. and they record all this stuff, and and they think of the thing that they're crafting, the story they're telling, the video as you know something that they love, and they they um, it, it's like a child, right? Yeah. They're creating this thing, and then. Um, in order to uh, tell the best story or for whatever reason to hit some sort of time goal or something like that, they have to cut a lot out. And it's it can be a hard feeling to get rid of something that you really feel an attachment, attachment to. An attachment to, yeah. Yeah, so they call it, you know, murdering
2: your babies. Although the petty person in me would, would mark down somewhere that code. And then if that edge case ever mm. does happen, <laughs> <laughs> like two years from now, you'd be like, look, I told you guys... <laughs>
0: So it's pretty much like how often is a school district going to be split when you live in the house? Like when are you going to have an elementary school, a middle school, and a high school that aren't in the same school district for that address? You don't know? Yeah. You don't know? My mock data said it was going to happen all the time.
3: (laughs) A hundred
2: percent of families.
0: Always. That's
2: a hill to die on, Carol. A hill to die
1: on. Yes.
0: Yes. But without crying.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, I guess I'll go next. Today I had a, a really rough day. I'm going I'm going to call this a triumph though. I had a really rough day. It was one of those days where you just you spend your entire day working on one thing and by the end of the day I had a headache and my eyes were glazed over and I just I felt like every time I felt like I was getting near the end of this task, I found another little hallway I had to go down and and you get to the end of that hallway and there's another one and the end of that hallway and there's another one. It's just it it I was refactoring a function uh, and removing ORM and putting in uh, SQL queries. And it just kept going and kept going always with the abstraction. And it took me all day, but I finally got it out on a QA by the end of the day. And after several rounds of fixing the parts that didn't work the first time through, it's finally working. So that's my triumph is it took me all day to do one task, but I got it done. <laughs> And I don't have to think about it tomorrow.
2: <laughs> so if I heard you're right, you're, you're taking out ORM and yes. putting in just so, I mean, I thought ORM is like the magic bullet that fixes everything. How, why would you ever do that?
0: Kind of like how Ben hates microservices. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, well, I mean, I guess to answer your question, we it's not a philosophical thing. It's a technical thing. The um, the ORM code was working fine on the old platform and on the new platform uh, it's for whatever reason causing issues, and instead of spending a week troubleshooting, it took me a day to just rewrite the whole thing in queries, and it's fine. So, and it it had something to do with mixing queries and ORM, and yeah, sometimes you know, that gets so, something that sounds totally mm-hmm. benign and like it shouldn't matter, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. it does. So, yeah. uh, it's just like it sucks, but it's th- this is the hand we've been dealt, so we're gonna fix it.
2: Yeah, ORM is great when it works, but when it doesn't work, I find it very hard to figure out why it doesn't work.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: One of the things that I do with SQL that it, I, I had—I didn't think of it for a few years, and then I started doing it, and it just made such a huge difference, and it's going to sound crazy, but at the top of every query that I write... I you put, put a, a bunch a, of comments,
1: Ben, was the last I, one to I edit put this? A com- no, no,
3: <laughs> I do. I put a comment at the top of the query that says the name of the file and the method that is running this query oh yeah because what happens is then when things start to show up in the general log or the slow log it tells me exactly where that query is getting run from and mm-hmm. um it's it helps tremendously for uh, for locating performance problems
2: yeah it's a good idea i should start doing that
0: i don't see the point of it i guess i'm missing something
3: because so if you're if you're it's, it's one thing to think about performance when you're looking at the application code and you're running your tests. Right. But it's another to then be reactive to performance problems in production where you see that your database for all all of a sudden spikes up to 90% CPU utilization. And you're like, why that? And, you know, maybe you can right. open up something like Fusion Reactor or, uh, or New Relic and, and get some insight. But sometimes you can just... Show process list. Show full process mm-hmm. list, and you see all of the queries that are currently running, and you see like you know, oh, fifteen of them are all running uh, the same file, and that it just okay. gives you the query. It doesn't yeah. say, yeah, it doesn't it,
0: say where it's yeah. from or what it's doing. Yeah, you just get the right. query output. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, now I'm following.
2: No. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, I've done a lot of that trying yeah. to troubleshoot like some SQL statements that are like killing the server, and you yeah. don't know why, and you're not really sure where it's coming from. Yeah, particularly in a terrible. Uh, a system that's using triggers, which mm. don't ever put it's business no, no, no. logic, don't triggers ever put, a, don't ever bad. put business logic in triggers. It's the worst thing. Don't ever. put
1: anything in triggers.
2: Triggers, triggers are just are no. Bad. Triggers are ridiculous. You can't troubleshoot them. <laughs> we have opinions
1: on triggers. Welcome to the opinions on triggers podcast.
2: Yeah. Oh, I could I could talk for days on how
1: much oh. I hate triggers.
0: Oh, nightmares.
1: Okay. Uh, well, Tim, why don't you keep going? You got a triumph or a fail this week.
2: All right, I'm not going to try to be like you guys and sugarcoat a, a failure as a triumph. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I flat out failed this week. Not this week, well, the past two days. So you know, earlier, I spoke about how I wanted to, you know, I'm using Redis now, and I was in love with Redis. Well, I hate Redis now. <laughs> And it's probably not (laughs) fair to Redis. I'm sure it's not Redis' fault. We still love you,
0: Redis. (laughs) Yeah,
2: it's probably something I'm doing. It's it's not you. It's me, Redis. Um, So I've got the Redis cluster set up. I'm writing to the cluster, doing an object cache. And on my local, it works fantastic. But when I actually put it up. I have a a load balancer with multiple instances. And all the instances are talking to the Redis uh, cache store. And periodically, and that's the worst part, it's not 100%. Mm-hmm. There are things I will put into the cache that should be there and then I immediately call the cache to get it out and it's not there. Oh, And I can't figure out why it is. Now, I've, I've alleviated it somehow by doing a terrible workaround. Of, I, I wrote a function that whenever I'm putting stuff into the cache, I basically do a block to say, all right, I've just put it in there now I'll now check, do I have it? I'll go get it. And if I don't get it, I will keep trying to get it and doing a a, a pause in between until I get it. And that works, but I don't that's like ugly. that. Yeah. Because the idea of Redis is it's yeah. so, supposed to be super fast. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if my Redis setup is wrong. I don't know if there's network communication that that's missing. I don't know. The, the driver that I'm using for this is a release candidate. It is not... Uh, a, a version one, so it's somewhat kind of still beta. So I don't know if that's wrong.
0: Could be playing into it.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know where it or if I'm just using it wrong.
1: Right, I don't know anything about Scala, but I. It sounds like what I would expect if I was using an async writer, but assuming it was synchronous. So it's this not done writing. It actually
3: isn't in Scala. Okay. This isn't Lucy. So, wait, okay. so, but when you say cluster, just to paint a, a clearer picture, are you saying you have? a primary Redis cache and then you have replicas? Yes. Okay, so you you think that you're writing to the primary and then your read is maybe hitting a replica and it hasn't replicated I don't even
2: think that far because, I I mean, the the driver is set up to only really talk to the primary. Gotcha. So I don't see how it would even know about the replicas. The replicas are just there for redundancy. Um, So, yeah, I'm just baffled. And It's one of those things when you start writing code to try to fix a problem and then you... Like all day yesterday I wrote and wrote and wrote and then I got it to where it was somewhat working, but it still wasn't a hundred percent. So I basically deleted everything I did yesterday.
0: <laughs> I hope you started, stashed it.
2: Murder that yeah, baby. I I mean I it was on a branch, but I'm like, you know what, this this shouldn't be this hard. Yeah. Right? I'm just putting stuff in a cache and getting it back out. It shouldn't be this hard. And I still don't at the end of the day, I'm still wondering. I don't know where the failure is. So and I feel like the failure. <laughs>
1: Um, I have some, I have a, some Lucy code that's hitting Redis Uh we're using CF Redis and
3: we use Jettis at work. It's the job. I think that's, I
1: think that might be what we're using under the hood. Like CF Redis is a CFC wrapper for gotcha. Jettis. Um, and I, we haven't had any of that problem, so I can send you my code maybe. And-
2: yeah, maybe, maybe I need to yeah just use a different one cause I'm using the, uh, the Lucy the standard Lucy Redis provider
4: hmm.
2: um and is it, it, it's a release candidate. It's not it's not they don't have a version one yet. So I don't I don't know if they're the problem. I don't I, I would imagine if it's a release candidate, it's probably close. I'm not doing anything
3: really that spectacularly difficult. Mm-hmm. Is it just so, you or is it uh is are there other people trying to hit this code at the same time? It's just me. I'm it's not you. yeah. It's just me. So in a in a if it was a if it was like a concurrent request situation, yeah. getting unexpected data would lead me to think there's like a un, an unvarred variable that's leaking into the mm-hmm. page context, and then maybe someone else's request is resetting overriding. your variable.
2: Yeah. Could
3: yeah. but if it's yeah, just not,
2: you, not if it's just single threaded, right. and, and I'm I'm uniquely naming the the key that I'm storing. So, it, you know. So anyway. Yeah, I'm frustrated, but, yeah, I will take you up on that, Adam. I will <laughs> I will look at that, and next week we'll be talking about what a hero you are. So.
1: Look,
0: your failure just you know, turned I'll, into a triumph.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll send you my Patreon link. And- <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ben, what do you got?
3: Uh, I have a failure and a triumph. Failure is that this week has just generally been kicking my ass. Um, I've just been tired and stressed all week. I've been working on, uh, putting together HTML emails and it's just, emails are terrible. Never fun. Not Never fun. And, um, and these are building on top of emails that someone else wrote. So it's, I don't even have the kind of the contextual thinking about how they were put together and uh, like even my feet hurt and I sit down all day and just like the stress has been everywhere. Uh, so I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm so happy that tomorrow's Friday. But <laughs> on the flip side to that, I've been thinking about these emails and and kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel of my mind, trying to come up with a way to make it more enjoyable to build emails. And I'm doing some R&D on using Cold Fusion custom tags as a way to create a DSL, domain specific language. Oh, that's for, a deep cut. For putting custom together tags? some emails and uh, it's still it's still pretty rough, but I'm I'm, I'm kind of stoked on where it's going. It's uh, essentially I put together stuff that looks like just vanilla HTML and I can sprinkle in some styles and it has all the power of cold fusion behind it. So, awesome. you know, right now when we w- at work, when we put together an HTML email, we import these node modules and then you have to compile the node module or like you have to run it through grunt Mm-hmm. And grunt takes all the CSS and it inlines it into the styles, and then it it does all this other weird stuff, and it's such a pain. And if I can get to a point where it's just edit some Cold Fusion code, refresh the page, and it works, sweet, I'm be sitting pretty. So I'm tentatively stoked on where that's going. Nice. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I've had to
2: re- write some um, responsive email mm. HTML, and it's it's so it's it's very much like working, you know seven years ago because everything is inline styles you really can't be doing the whole css Mm -hmm. tags and everything in emails it it just doesn't understand that but outlook still uses
3: microsoft word Mm -hmm. to render their emails i
2: believe Mm -hmm. yeah
3: Mm -hmm. but yeah there's a there's a few places out there that have some templates that are actually pretty good yeah Uh, yeah carol was mentioning she had some uh, responsive receipt templates that she was using those
0: i think that was tim
3: uh, it was oh, when that you. was Tim? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah.
0: We sound just alike. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. We look alike, too. We look alike, too. Yeah. You just were like, someone from Georgia gave me this.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I don't people well, as Carol
0: said. <laughs> <laughs> I don't people well at all. <laughs> so I would like to say, you had said previously that you got some feedback at the session that you gave on custom tags yes. that said it was pretty vanilla, right? Or pretty like, basic, yeah. Pretty basic. Is this like your? I need to do better now. Like I'm I'm going to improve my camera.
1: Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Find that one guy. Remember that feedback you left me on my, my presentation 13 years ago.
0: Uh huh.
3: No, it's really. Read it. (laughs) Actually. (laughs)
0: Yes.
3: (laughs) I don't know. I think it's pretty cool. I think it's going to be exciting. Custom tags is one of those things that I feel like 90% of the
1: things that 90% of the people need to do with them is boring. Yeah, you know, they, it's, it's a, they don't do
0: anything fun with it. It's yeah. a view
1: layer mm-hmm. encapsulation technique. Uh, but I have been exposed to some custom tag stuff that kind of like blew my mind. Yeah. There was a, a blogging engine for CFML called Mango Blog. Oh, sure. Um, and it heavily used custom tags and they like um, provided data to each other with like a context sort of thing. And I had never seen that done so well. And it cool. was, it was, I never fully understood it. That's how cool and, uh, like, uh, powerful and complex it was. It was like, it would take honest to goodness studying. And I wasn't willing to do that. I was just like, I need to get my <laughs> thing done, go over here and do the work.
3: And well, that's, I mean, that's some of the stuff that I'm, I'm trying to do here because you can, you can nest the tags. And then mm-hmm. to your point, uh, you have the get base tag data where you can start to mm-hmm. reach up into ancestral tags and you can interact with the page scope inside of those tags.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, so I'm using that to, to essentially implement some of the cascading properties of CSS, but in a, in a kind of Dom traversal way right. where the Dom is custom tags. Interesting. <laughs> we'll see. It might be a hot mess, but at the moment <laughs> it's balancing out the, uh, the tragedy that is my working hours. There
2: you go. <laughs> cool. Well, hey, guys, you want to talk about scaling? Sure. Yeah. All right. I I threw this out there because scaling is one of those things that, in my mind, I don't think about until it's too late. I don't know at what point you really start to take scaling seriously because scaling is hard. I'm going to say it up front. It is hard. Mm -hmm. It is a design choice that has long-term consequences to your project. And t- but typically with a project, I start out with a proof of concept, right? So I just want to build something. I'm not going to worry about scaling in a proof of concept. Mm-hmm. Just not going to do it. And then you come up with an MVP, right? The Minimal Viable Product. Maybe I do it there, but a lot of times I don't. But then sometimes what happens because of real world concerns is you take your MVP and what happens your MVP starts selling. Yep. Mm-hmm. And now... You got to worry about scaling because at some point you know this thing's going to fall over. Yeah, before you know it, you're seven
1: you're, years in and, mm-hmm. and you're right. restarting <laughs> the application every six hours so that it
2: doesn't fall over when you're taking yeah. a nap.
1: Scheduled
0: exactly. restarts at midnight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Exactly. So, I mean, scaling is a hard topic for me because I don't know necessarily how to define it because scaling can mean different things for different purposes and when to do it so that 's why i 'm throwing this this out on the table is what do you guys i mean help me what, how do we how do we scale
0: you 're not talking about scalable code like I feel like when we all write code, we think of scaling right we 're thinking of how it 's going to run low or how it 's going to run high i know you 're not talking about code no. specific right you 're talking about just well i mean the code's definitely
2: a part of it I, I would think modular code can tend to be more scalable uh, that 's my opinion but yeah. i 'm talking about more about like, for instance, your database, for, for me, databases always seemed to be the, the one point of failure and the one bottleneck Yeah. because everything, all your code is, really is doing is just massaging stuff to stick it in a database at some point or some, somehow to persist the data, um, which is why I've been, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, is why I've been looking at CockroachDB, which is the distributed database. Which oh, is,
0: that's a real thing.
2: Oh, yeah. conference oh, TV. Yeah, yeah. I haven't yeah, even looked
0: at that. I thought yeah. you were just joking about something.
2: No, <laughs> no. Dang. Yeah. Should have
0: Googled that one. Yeah, ah, Conquer- you got stickers.
2: Yeah. Adam's got a sticker there. Yeah. So.
3: I think, I think though, you talked about scaling, uh, not thinking about scaling until it's too late. And I, I almost think that that's the right time to think about it is when it's a little bit too late. because contrary contrarian, you, you. I love you.
0: <laughs> yeah, because if you plan ahead, you don't know what you're truly planning for. Like, to me, you don't know what the outlook's going to look like. But once you need it, then you see the, the issues that are arising. You see what you actually have to work with.
1: Yeah. I think maybe the, the middle ground here is to have an idea of what it would take to scale various parts of your application, like um, the database or uh, a, a particularly CPU-intensive process or something like that, um, whether it be, uh, you know, I need to put this on a powerful server, That's whether would be like scaling up, or I need to run this massively parallel, so like on Lambda or something with a lot of parallel execution. Have an idea of what you want to do to deal with any particular uh, feature in order to uh, handle it not being able to keep up anymore and then build in a way that's not going to stop you or slow you down too much from doing that. That's kind of what I have in mind. So, like, I agree with Ben and Carol saying, like, don't even write a line of code specifically for the purpose of scaling until you can't. the code that you have can't keep up anymore. But I guess my caveat to that is don't intentionally take on the technical debt that's going to make it harder, significantly harder for you to scale it when it comes time. And I think the other thing, the other piece that I keep thinking about here is that um, writing code for scale, it's difficult to get from one to two. But once you can do that, going from 2 to 17 to 147 so much easier. parallelization mm-hmm. is is easy mm-hmm. or easier. But I, I mean, a lot of
2: the assumptions, not assumptions, let me back up. So the choices that you make as far as uh, your caching strategy, your load balancing strategy, mm-hmm. your, uh, your persistence layer, what you're going to use as your database, all of those things feed into scale true mm-hmm. sure. but scale can mean different things for instance does scale mean are we going into new geographies so uh, we're not just north america you know we, we we're in china we're in japan mm-hmm. we're in india we're in you know we're in europe we're all we're global S- that is a different kind of scaling yeah. than just saying our target customer is north america uh during this time period and it's a very kind of uh targeted market
1: So that's more like geographic scaling right and, geographic and, scaling uh latency is that kind of what you're worried exactly. about there okay. yeah
2: so i mean are you trying to scale so that that people from all over the world are going to get the same experience versus your north american people because you happen to be in north america are getting a good experience but your your customers in japan are not getting an experience because you know you've built it to scale for a certain situation
1: mm-hmm So I I guess, I mean, the question I'm asking myself is, are you talking about you need one central source of truth? So you don't want to have like you said you're you're talking about this globalization problem. You don't want to split it up into separate. If you're building Twitter, you don't want India Twitter and Asia Twitter and North America Twitter. You want one Twitter that they all share.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, Yeah. No, I I have not had the pleasure of having that problem
2: yet. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And and I haven't either, but it's like it, it could be a problem. So where do you decide that? Do do I worry about that now? Right? So, I mean, we deal in financial markets, and the financial markets are global.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Right.
2: So do we worry about that right now, or do I just put that problem off until, you know, we get our first, you know, uh, we have customers in North America and Canada and Europe, but I worry about Asia and you know, at some point, do I just worry about that then and then have to address it? And now I realize that some other choice that I've made prior uh, using a replicated MySQL server all locally is now hindering me because the latency between yeah. them is, is far. So that's, that's what I'm struggling with.
1: My honest answer? I kick the can and then I hire somebody really smart to deal with it for me. <laughs>
3: well, that's, that's what I was going to say, too, because <laughs> I, my biggest limiting factor... Is that I can think as far as my skill set, right. and I don't know how to build a globally distributed system with you know multi-zone region replication and Amazon Web Services. That, that's that's like a whole team of people doing that. Whatever yeah. that is, um, I, I think in, in the early days of trying to ideate on a on a product and come up with your MVP. There, there's not to be flippant about it, but there's something to say that early scaling problems, you can throw money at mm-hmm. bigger servers, mm-hmm. you know, scaling up. Nobody wants to scale up long-term, but in the short term,
0: band- doubling thing. the size yeah. of your database
3: yeah. is going to actually get you pretty good mileage. Yeah. Yeah. It buys you the time yeah. to yeah, scale horizontally. Yep. yep. And that has
2: been the strategy in the past. and I've not been happy with that because it just feels like a brute force uh, method that that just really should be something more elegant to to attack that no okay. baby steps
1: <laughs> like Ben said, that's kind of outside my skill set. I would love to have that skill someday, but it, for right now it's outside um but the things that are pinging in my brain here there's like um eventual consistency databases, so I don't know any names of them off the top of my head, but I wanna say Mongo might have
2: this model. And, and that's why I'm also looking at Cockroach right now because uh, Cockroach, you have to have at least three nodes in order to even run one. Um, I think you can actually do two, but but three is is pretty much what you have to do. And it reaches uh, a consensus. Uh, it's Acid. It uses normal r- SQL. T-SQL, it uses yeah. the yeah, yeah. T SQL. It uses um, uh, the Postgres wire protocol. So I mean, it's it's pretty freaking awesome, but it's also pretty freaking new. Um, so yeah, it's just something I keep keep an eye on because I, my my dream would just be to have, you know, cloud based uh, cockroach D B centers all around the globe. All of them running, <laughs> all of them talking to each other. And it doesn't matter if one goes down. It's the chaos monkey thing. I, I want to be able to just totally You're nuke North America. Mm-hmm. Nuke, nuke North America and everything just keeps
1: running. The
0: cockroaches um, survive. The cockroaches survive. Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up Ben Nadell here and instead of Rich Hickey, I'm going to Uh, point to the guy that i point to often which is uh dan mckinley Mm -hmm. uh he has a presentation that he's given uh the and it has its own website it's called boring technology.club and one (laughs) of the concepts in this uh presentation is to you i mean it's it's what's in the name boring technology use boring technology and what he says is like you you kind of the more new innovative exciting technology that you use in an application the harder it's going to be to keep it all going long term so he kind of comes at it from this perspective of you have like a certain number of innovation tokens in a project that you can use and so if you pick uh you know a brand new database well maybe then nothing else should be you Mm. know you should be using like php and that's it (laughs) and notepad and um (laughs) Uh, you know or, or something like that right so like the more out there you go on one thing the, uh, the more boring
3: everything else should be if, so. if i can if i can just piggyback on what you're saying and just go on a tangent for two <laughs> seconds go
0: because how many is, more buzzwords run. you gotta get
3: some syme- synergy symmetry this, this is point <laughs> of point of mind for me i, I wrote a, a post the other day called enterprise is not a dirty word and what that stems from is listening to a lot of podcasts, especially around this time when I think some sort of state of the JavaScript or state of the GitHub or some yeah, some JavaScript. just came out. Yeah, and and what you hear often is that oh, you know this technology XYZ, it's losing popularity, but it's still used very heavily in the enterprise, as if as as if like that's where technology goes to die. <laughs> and and I the 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 issue I take with that is to Adam's point. Like boring technology allows you to build solid products.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And to say that something is used heavily in the enterprise to me is a sign that it's a very dependable piece of software because it's you know not, who's going anywhere. not using it if it's not dependable, enterprise. They're yeah. spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars a year on infrastructure, on software licensing. Like it's it's gotta be useful if they're using it. And I just I, I challenge that assertion.
2: So I, I think a lot of times they're they're tied into it because they've been using it and the cost of redoing it is too high so it's it's just it's to throw money at the problem right it's like yeah sure we got to buy all these licenses but you know what it works uh we really don't want to redo it it it, maybe it could be marginally better if we rewrote it in something different and newer but we're not going to so i'm sure the truth is somewhere in the
1: middle there
3: i i would argue that the throwing money at it is is in a sense Voting on the things that are important to work on, that emphasizing the technology itself, there's no return on investment there. Whereas having something that's trusted, it might not be the best, but it's dependable, allows the teams to focus on building the products, delivering to customers solving customer needs as opposed to right. solving infrastructure needs
1: yeah the the newer and and more untested the pro the technology is the more you're going to be dealing with the quirks of the that gotchas. technology yeah and mm-hmm. potential bugs mm-hmm. and less you'll be able to focus on
3: your product
0: you're going to be solving those core product issues instead of your own
3: now i will caveat heavily to say that part of my emotions here are the fact that I use a lot of technologies that mm-hmm. people keep saying, Oh, well that's still popular in the <laughs> enterprise. Yeah, <right. laughs> yeah.
2: And I think another part of scaling besides what I was talking about, the, the global scaling it is, you know, initially how I approach software is you have a very small team that builds a prototype, sometimes one person. A lot of times I'm the only person building a prototype Hand it off to someone else. It's a small team of maybe two, three people. They take it to the MVP, um, but then now it becomes, you know, a, a moneymaker, and you go into maintenance and and adding new features, scaling the ability to to maintain that code, to build that code, to extend that code. That's I think what I was talking about before is more sort of like the the technology, hardware, um, you know, underlying design. Database sort of things. Writing the code in such a way that it can be scaled to address future concerns is also a challenge because I only know how to write code the way I like. Right, right. Not everyone likes the way I write code. <laughs> so, how, how do you, how do you guys address that of of with building a project with the idea that eventually this is going to become a staple of the company that is going to have to be built, maintained and improved upon over the years.
1: I say code like the person who will be maintaining it after you knows where you sleep and (laughs) has a murderous uh, (laughs) tendency, right? Like, honestly, like code for readability and for uh, just like cleanliness, easy to maintain, Uh, you know, comment well and and try to abstract things in a way that makes sense. Mm.
0: And so someone can come behind you and then grow that based off what you've built. And I think it's also important to have a well-balanced team. Like it's Mm. really hard to think about scaling like Adam and Ben both said, when you don't know what is out there, when you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. So if you are, you know, at a point where you've now made this product, go out and it's working, then you should invest in people that know those skills that can help you then scale it.
3: Also, if you can create, if you understand your own limitations in, in terms of what you understand about technology, if you can build layers of abstraction that can potentially allow you to swap things out in the future, then, then you can sort of hedge against poor decisions for like example,
4: what?
3: Yeah. For example, let's say you needed to do something where you were going to process messages. Everyone who's experienced would be like, oh, just then you're going to use some sort of message queue.
0: Easy. But do if,
3: it. If you're just if you're just a person and you're on your local machine and you're building a data driven <laughs> application, you can say, Well, yeah, but I don't want to have both a database and a message queue set up, because then like, do I have to have RabbitMQ or something AMP? queue running locally? Do I have to use Amazon SQS or something? So you could say, you know what, for the MVP I'm just going to use a data table as my messaging system. And as long as I have an API layer around it, then later I can switch that out with something that's more robust and battle tested and I'm not going to have to have lots of like crazy transactional locking or something but I understand databases I don't understand message queues very well but I can hedge against that and build it in such a way that Theoretically, I could swap it out later when it proves to be necessary.
0: Mm -hmm. That makes sense.
2: Yeah, I mean, and that's just sort of basic object-oriented programming, right? I mean, looking at things from building functions that, that do specific things that you can later refactor those functions to do different things or extend them.
3: Am I wrong? I think it's the idea, right? I mean, look... I don't really know that much about object oriented programming. I, <laughs> I I told myself this is this is like uh, what do they call it in the hype cycle. I don't know what the, the peak of the hype cycle Just is. The
1: peak the, of disillusionment and the trough, the, trough of, of disillusionment, disillusionment. Of the
3: trough of disillusionment disillusionment. Yeah. I years hype, ago
1: yeah,
3: I, I didn't know anything about object oriented programming. I told myself, if I just continue to work hard and eat my vegetables, <laughs> <laughs> I would one day understand object-oriented programming. And, you know, this was this was kind of around the time uh, Malcolm Gladwell came out with, um, what was it, the Blink? Outliers. Outliers. No. And there was all this stuff about, like, oh, well, you've got to put in your 10,000 hours. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'll just put in my 10,000 hours, and I'm going to emerge on the other end, this object-oriented programming master. And, uh, you know, 15 years later... I, I, I can't object-oriented program. I'm, I'm still mostly just writing procedural <laughs> code and handwriting SQL statements. It's, uh, I, I'm, I don't know. So I forget where I was going with that, other than to say that I don't know that much <laughs> about object-oriented programming, other than you're creating an API and you're passing messages. It's all about implementation detail, hiding. and Yeah.
1: I feel like I struggled with it for a really long time. And then when I finally got a framework that clicked well with the way my brain works. uh, So we use a, an MVC framework. So it's called framework one. And the way that you organize your views and your controllers and your services works well for, for my brain. And it helps me separate out. This is my view logic. This is my service logic. And this is sort of a layer that connects the two. And, and this is where session variables live and that sort of thing. And, I don't know if that technically makes what I've been doing object-oriented programming, but I feel like it's well-organized code, mm-hmm. and that is good enough for me.
3: Th- that's how yeah. I feel.
2: Yeah, I think well-organized code is pro- probably better. I mean, object-oriented is just the methodology. It's the one I brought up because that's the one I use. But, yeah, if it's well-organized, then then you can scale it. Uh, you're not everything that is running, each function has its own purpose. Mm-hmm and you're not doing too many things in one one function and so it's just a matter of if you want to scale a team um you know they they're going to work on the each different service they're going to each yeah. you know do the do the functions so
0: you actually yeah. could break the application apart then into teams right
3: yeah yeah hm i feel like one of the problems that we've had in our software when i say we i mean like the software i work on is that We've had too much coupling too far down in the control flow of, of the application, that there were things that we coded to happen at the same time, and, and I always feel like that should have happened higher up in the application, and then the things down lower should have been much more loosely coupled or completely mm-hmm. decoupled from each other. Um. Because when you when I got into programming, the whole idea of anything being asynchronous or, or eventually consistent, you know, even to this day, I'm still trying to wrap my head around what that means and what that implies for an application. So everything had to happen in lockstep. like you did this and it called an API and it sent an email, and like all of those things had to happen or the system would explode. like I didn't have any way to compensate for something like that. But I think a big part of scaling is embracing this idea that the world is just asynchronous and things Mm. all over the place are eventually consistent. And just because a user signs up in your system and they have to get a welcome email, Mm. like those don't have to be right next to each other in the code for that to, for that to be consistent. Like those can be completely decoupled and you can imagine a world where an email has to get resent or it doesn't get sent at all for whatever (laughs) reasons. And that was, that's, that's still something I'm trying to understand how to both retrofit into the existing application, but then to also think about new applications going forward. And is that where messaging queues are helpful? I think so, in some some ways. Yeah, that's one approach. Uh, I was looking for, I feel like the
1: last time GitHub went down, they had on their status page a list of like, um, these are the number of errored, you know, get requests in the last or or over time, right? And and uh, how many um, asynchronous of this type of operation we are behind, right? The the requests have been queuing or they're sitting in the the work queue sort of thing, um, and it's not on their status page right now. But I was that is what came to mind when you were talking about you know separating the welcome email from the sign up mm-hmm. process.
3: Well, is such an interesting example for me because. GitHub works really, really well 99.99% of the time. Yeah. But every now and then you'll go to create a PR mm-hmm. and it'll refresh the page and it'll just give you a 404 that your PR can't be found. <laughs> and like The really leader. angry unicorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, looping back to Tim's discussion about Redis and writing to the cache and then reading and all of a sudden the the read's it's just not, not there. there
4: yeah.
3: I mean, I don't know what's happening in GitHub, obviously, but something is... Something is asynchronous or something is eventually consistent, yeah. and you, you just happen to hit a read replica that didn't have your PR replicate to it yet, and it's 404. And, and at some point, they just say that's a calculated risk that that's going to happen You know, mm-hmm. one out of every million requests, and the user's going to refresh. And yep. life goes right. on. Yeah.
1: I, I always am amused when I get the, like, okay, the page timed out sort of thing from, from GitHub, and it was literally like one and a half seconds, two seconds. And I'm like, (laughs) you're, you're operating at another level from me, right? Like we have timeouts too, but ours are like 60 seconds or, or for certain things like 10 minutes. Uh, (laughs) Well, I'm talking, you know, these are big things, These are like whole database table synchronizations across things. But, uh, but still like to, to detect that, that I couldn't handle, you know, whatever, loading the page, connect to Redis, whatever. And I gave it two seconds and that was, not good enough and so I'm going to return to the user like good for them that's that's awesome great user experience on for me uh but it's just uh I I can't (laughs) uh, I'm jealous to to be able to operate at that at that level
3: there was a I was listening to an interview a couple years ago I want to say it was with a developer from the New York Times but I don't know if that's true And they were talking about something that was just very interesting in terms of people thinking on a different scale. And they had, I forget what they called it, it was like a blocking request budget. Mm. When a request comes into the server, they have a budget for the number of blocking requests that, that processing that response can take before they can serve data up to the user. And that if you're going to exceed that, that can't be part of the parent request That has to be a subsequent Uh request that the browser makes back to the server to get data because otherwise they were finding that they just, they couldn't manage performance over time unless they had some number they could point to and be like, oh, you know, you've exceeded your blocking request budget. That can't be part of this parent request.
1: Hmm. And was this like
3: enforced in like code review or? uh, I don't know. It may have been tribal. Yeah. Who knows? Okay. Hmm. It's interesting. Just all the different ways people think about putting software together is so fascinating. Yeah,
2: yeah, it is. It, it's it, and there's so many answers. It, it just kind of leaves you, you know, wondering which one's the right one, right? right?
3: None so, of
0: us know. We just because I think we've
2: been talking about this almost an hour, and I don't. <laughs> no one's given me an answer yet, guys. Well, just so maybe this is a good time to pivot. Then,
1: so when you when we brought up the topic of scaling, I thought this was going to be a sort of a different discussion, and I am curious if you would like to have some. Maybe sample scaling stories. Although, like I said, we haven't had that geographic scaling issue, even across like availability zones on uh, Amazon or or regions. Is that what they call them? I don't remember. Um, But a technical scaling issue, like computer couldn't keep up or server couldn't keep up sort of thing. Um, I mean, I have a story in mind that I wouldn't mind telling. And we can, if you guys want to go that way, we can go that way or we can not.
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I I got stories too where I've solved scaling in the past, right? You know, and 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 I think
1: this one in particular, I feel like, is a good example of not prematurely, (laughs) not prematurely (laughs) optimizing, and then dealing with it well when we got there. So, um, we have a our product has a a module that is very heavily used for marketing, and it sends a lot of email, Um, and the it was originally like the mvp was made on cold fusion and the uh, and it was not an enterprise license it was a standard license which means that all mail was uh, i think that the mailer was single threaded if i'm not mistaken hmm. um and so ultimately what that meant was it could send something like i don't know three thousand, four thousand emails an hour something like that 4500 emails an hour which sounds like a lot uh But we, some of our customers are large, and they want to send an email to, say, 300,000 people, and they might want to send more than one of those in a day. Um, And I promise this is not spam. This is actually, like, legitimate (laughs) email people have signed up for type thing.
2: Um, You say that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're not judging. Uh, But, uh, you know, so – it's one thing to be to take a while to send out an email, but when when the customer send, clicks send on an email, they're expecting I'm sending an email to three hundred thousand people, and I want it to go, and I want it to go now. No. Right? Like I don't yeah. want it to take three days to send my message. Um, and so that became a problem for us relatively quickly after this email module started to take off. And I forget what the middle step was, but where we have ended up. So originally we we um, we wrote database records to a queue table, uh, and they were they con- that table contained the rendered body text and HTML bodies of the emails. Uh, rendering was sort of a separate phase, and then when it was time to send, the theory was they would all be rendered in advance, and then we would just read a row, send the email, update it as to market as sent, and move on to the next one. And that's what we were doing with the the one that could go forty five hundred an hour or whatever. And obviously that wasn't going to keep up. So where we have since ended up is we still have that same table, but now um, we write the row to that table and the text and HTML bodies are blank. And it sends an Amazon SNS message uh, that has some some context information you're rendering for this customer. This is the message ID. Um, That might be it. Uh, whatever, a couple of other details. And that SNS message gets picked up by a Lambda, which will go and write empty files onto S3 for each recipient of that message. And then the file name uh, indicates things like uh, the customer and the message ID and the recipient ID. And then there's an S3 trigger that uh, triggers another Lambda uh, function that... Uh, we'll do the rendering and write all of the rendered content, the HTML content and the text body and the subject, which can be dynamic, to that same file, and then it just sits there in a separate S3 bucket. And then when it's time to send, we have a separate—I uh, don't know what you would call it. It's a—it's just a micro server. Um, it's running on uh, ECS. Elastic Container Service is Fargate. Um, It's a Node.js app, and um, it uses the Mailgun API to send mail. And we have found that we can send email so fast that we get blocked by Mailgun (laughs) using that service. So we had to write in uh, what we call a governor, and so we have a a throttle limit. Yeah. Yeah, so we have have a a limit that we set. We want to send no more than, say, 6,000 a minute um, and we use, uh, multiple threads to do the sending, right? We do, here's a batch of a thousand, send those to any given Lambda function and the function runs and it says, okay, I'm going to send those thousand. And then it says, okay, well, I've only been running for eight seconds and I know a Lambda thread can go for three minutes or whatever. This was, I think they can run longer now, but at the time, um, and so it would go, okay, I have time to do more. So it would check in back with, the the, orchestrator of this whole thing um and say okay i can do more work if you want me to and and they would get another batch and go send another thousand messages and keep looping and then that the orchestrator guy uh has to keep track of the per minute max right that's six thousand or whatever it's going to be um and we're doing math with like standard deviations to decide okay yes we've got threads that can run and they have the headroom to send more right now but uh are we going are we in danger of hitting our limit if we uh if we do send more so it'll back off and send less or send none depending on uh how much is left in this what we call a calendar minute um, and yeah and it it's uh it, it was interesting it's it was one of those scenarios where we have a, a huge problem right the customers are pissed at us because we're not sending email fast enough and so we hunkered down. Uh, pre-pandemic, in a uh, in a hotel, and we we're like, okay, block out all distractions, no email, no client meetings. Just th- got the team together and said, fix this problem. Out. Yep, and uh, it was fun and exciting, and probably not the healthiest thing to do. Mm. Uh, you know, like working eighteen plus hour days on this problem, but it was exciting technology. For us at the time we hadn't, uh, hadn't done much with lambda and containers
2: and stuff so so that's an example of you know scaling when need arises yes exactly yeah.
0: how did you come up with the solution is it something you guys knew about did you bring someone in to help advise what like what was that piece
1: we were familiar with what the technology was capable of like using lambda functions and uh yeah i mean it was kind of a this is the problem that we have and looking over at that solution over there, they, this is the, what they advertise as a possible fix for that type of problem. And so what, what's missing in the middle? What are the puzzle pieces we need to figure out? And we would play with one or two, you know, kind of like your um, pair planning. Yeah. Uh, Come up with with a couple of ideas, talk to each other about them uh, and decide which way is probably the best to go. Do a quick proof of concept uh, and see if it works out for
2: us. And then, go with the one that works best. Do you have any idea what the upper limit of that solution would be? Like, when would be the next time you'd have to redo it? That's a good question.
1: Um, So the answer is probably not anything reasonable. I think the next time that we would have to change the technology would be uh, for other problems other than that. So right now, like I said, we are limiting ourselves to a few thousand per calendar minute. uh, And that is we... We do that by having worker lambdas that the, the – we call it a conductor. Like a, it's conducting an orchestra mm-hmm. of email. Um, so the conductor is dealing with these four workers um, and – or up to four workers. And in theory, we could go up to 20 or 100. Not, not, I guess not 100, right? Isn't lambda, you're limited to like 100 concurrent executions or is it 1,000? I think it might be 1,000. It might be 1,000. Either way, it's a ridiculous amount. Um, mm-hmm. And so we could, in theory, turn up our per minute max and turn up our number of allowable workers. And it'll just every, so it's on a timer, it will go and say, okay, um, do I need to send more this minute or or can I send more this minute in terms of our per minute max? And uh, have I reached the number of maximum workers? And if both of those are in positive direction, then it'll spin up a new worker and say, here's your batch.
3: Gotcha. How okay. do you when you talk about having to put a governor on how fast you're sending emails because mm-hmm. you start getting blocked by spam filters?
1: It wasn't by spam filters; it was
3: by our mail provider. So we're using
1: uh, Mailgun, but before that, it was we were using. It doesn't matter, uh, and and so we're sending email over an API request instead of doing SMTP, uh, and their API limits the number of API requests that you can make per minute, I guess it is. Interesting.
3: I wonder if you could, I don't know if this would be a bad solution, but you could almost shard API keys based on some subset of clients. Mm -hmm. Like if you have, if like Harvard, for example, sends out bajillion emails, just give them their own API key.
0: That's like where my head was going when he was talking about his limits. I was like, I wonder if he could work around that.
1: There are a bunch of ways that would be possible to work around that. One of the problems with our, that we would run into is that when you're sending an email, you're sending it from a specific domain, mm-hmm. and that domain has to be attached to the account that's sending it, like our Mailgun account. And I don't know if you can attach multiple... You probably can have multiple Mailgun accounts allowed to, a to a send on behalf of a certain domain. Um, and so that's one possibli- possibility. Another is uh, Mailgun has a different approach to uh, this problem, which is that they support, you can make one API request and say, okay, here's 10,000 people I want you to send this message to, and you send them like a message template and a separate uh, list of, okay, for this email address, these are the values that I want you to put in for the token. So they do the rendering mm-hmm. for you. Like a mail merge. Is that yeah. yeah, yeah, very
2: yeah. much like a mail merge. We use SendGrid, SendGrid. Pretty much right. the same way. And
1: and if we didn't already have the infrastructure to do all of the rendering on our side in advance ready to go before we got to Mailgun, then we probably would have used that, but we already had it on our side, and so it made more sense to just not rewrite that part of our infrastructure uh, and go this way.
0: So you still have a couple options to scale this we do. product that's is
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and the first thing that I think we would do is throw money at it, right? Yeah. So increase our account level so that we can mm-hmm. get a higher API limit sort of thing. Yep.
3: So what does your local development look like for something like this cuz this, this is uh, the the I think the flip side of a scaling conversation is always yeah. You know what does it look like in production it has all the bells and whistles but then mm-hmm. when I boot up my MacBook to start doing some coding do I also have to have <laughs> an yeah, Amazon exactly key and SQSs and lambdas set up or you have to start running yep. uh, something called like local stack, which I think kind of mocks out a lot of the Amazon APIs, but. Yeah, I,
1: I don't know. You found that the primary problem that I think people building these massively parallel systems have, and that is local the development. The fly in the ointment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, so there is another, uh, I think you're right, and then another one of those I think is called SAM local. I think, and SAM is an acronym that I don't yeah. remember what or it that is. That
3: might be what I'm thinking of.
1: And uh, the idea is to basically like give you a container that you can run locally. So you have like a local uh, Lambda container and you can, you can run functions inside of that and they can have mock things that they can work with to say, okay, I sent the email or, okay, I wrote the file to S3,
3: whatever it's going to be. Um, I, and I think that's a community-driven project. I don't think that's like the Amazon team. Yeah, like I'm not sure we're, we're not using it.
1: So what we do is uh, very carefully test in QA. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we have a separate uh, set of S3 buckets and a separate um, mm-hmm. lambda set of Lambda functions. And we very, very carefully and thoroughly sanitize email addresses because uh, before the podcast began uh a, a major fail i had was i accidentally <laughs> sent from qa to real people like mm, let's say in on the order of thousands of emails with links <laughs> no. to the qa environment
2: after you said oh. you swear it's not spam
1: oh He's yeah it was spam that time but uh it was testing is just poorly sanitized uh, it, it was after you know one, it, it, one of the things that you do in order to test well is you uh, occasionally copy your production database down to QA so that you have real yep. data to play with that, that is shaped the same way as production data, that sort of thing. And we just hadn't, uh, hit max tier on our sanitization game at that point. You know, there were email addresses buried here and there.
2: And mm-hmm. so I, I think, I think Ben hit on it though. the the, the challenge that developing locally, in a way that simulates the mm-hmm. problem of scale is not easy. It's no. not. You wind up mocking a bunch of things, <laughs> which is fine. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and, I, I guess it's why you, a lot of times the things you find out are really only, only in production. Yeah, have like, good logs. This
0: mm-hmm. is a silly one, but this is from when Tim and I worked together. We used to run into the issue of what happens when you're on HTTPS versus HTTP. I mean... Oh, yeah. Our productions production. are all on secure, and then all of a sudden, I have things that aren't working in production that work fine in local because there is no HTTP. There's no, I don't have any cert issues on my local that I have to account for. Mm. So.
1: so, we actually recently solved that problem for ourselves uh, for the second time. The first time we were using, <laughs> uh, once service. is never
0: enough, Adam.
1: Well, the, we were using a service, uh, called localhost.tools, and so basically, there's a lot of these things out there where it's called, it's kind of dynamic DNS, but it, whatever you point it at points back to localhost. So you get a public-facing uh, host name, that, and it uses a real TLD so that, you know, like Chrome doesn't say, oh, you can't do this because you're running on localhost. Um, and they have a wildcard SSL certificate, and so you yep. run, like, you know, foo.localhost.tools, and it points to your local machine, and you've got an Apache header set up to so, to respond to foo.localhost.tools, and you can run that on SSL, and that's fine. And then for whatever reason, I think localhost.tools shut down; they're not doing it anymore. So we have we bought another domain, and we just do sort of the same thing uh, on our own.
2: I mean, now that Let's Encrypt is is you can do SSL certs for free. That, that's yeah.
1: The hard part is just setting something up to be able to do it locally on what looks like a a uh, publicly available TLD so that other things that are looking at that treat it as if it's public.
0: The same thing, yeah.
2: The scaling thing that that I've run into, again, it's where this need creates, you know, we have a very highly transactional database, very, um, it's not flat at all, but doing reporting many times can be the thing that can Mm -hmm. cause you issues. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and this is, Probably a pretty common attack pattern for it to to, to address the issue is to basically we we don't need all the data at the second it's there. Mm -hmm. Typically reports are going to be after we're dealing with financial transactions. So you're only looking in the past. It doesn't need to be up to the millisecond correct. So taking the data that we have, shipping it off, sanitizing it, uh, shipping it off to a Postgres SQL database and RDS up in Amazon, flattening the entire View so that it's, you don't have to do any joins to pull any data, and then only doing your reads for reporting off of that mm-hmm. uh, data source versus going to your, your transactional database, which is doing all the work, which slows things down. So, I mean, that, I wouldn't even call that scaling. I would just say that's kind of the way you should deal with, <laughs> yeah. you know, have, have different platforms, for, mm. one for reading, one for writing. Uh, that's just
3: That's just the way you should do things. But yeah. it's all about... Uh, it's all about... The skill set that you have available and the the money you have, I mean, if you're you're one person and you're thinking about how do I present data to somebody, I mean, I imagine that for most people, the default reaction isn't to create some sort of redshift data lake (laughs) in Amazon and doing entity transform what a etl i don't even know what all the acronyms stand for but it's (laughs) extract
1: transform and load
3: yeah Yeah. it's like my reaction to that is is there just an additional index i can throw on this table that will make it a little faster (laughs) to get the data because like that's that's the tools i know how to use and that's the Uh, money i have to throw at it
2: uh, it's it's so tough
3: I'm, i'm not i'm not saying that my way is better at all i'm saying like
2: no, I I'm, I'm I pretty sure your way is worse. I, <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I, yeah, I, it's funny because that's immediately where my head went. It's like I, I, and but that's only because I've come from a world where the pain of. Trying to run reports on your actively being updated datas, da- database mm-hmm. was so painful. Table locks, yeah. Yeah. and I'm like,
3: I am never doing that again. It is terrible. I'm like, go kill,
0: and go kill, go kill. If you're lucky, SPID you get a replica.
3: But I'm, again, I'm not saying that it's better. I'm saying I'm saying that I think what is so challenging about thinking about scale is that it, you you don't scale an application independently of your business. Your application and your business sort of have to scale in lockstep because Mm -hmm. the complexities that go into scaling the application necessitate a wider array of skill sets. Yeah.
0: I think you said it, Tim, too. You were like, I know to do this because I've had the pain of dealing with it. And that's where it goes with getting the team that is set to do that.
2: Mm. Well, the team was me. I know. (laughs) <laughs> but I had the skills. Yeah. So fortunately, but, uh, yeah, it, it it's a challenge. It's, I, I, I don't think I, I would like to think I could eventually be the person who could like foresee the problems, but I, you know, in software, you can't even plan nine months Mm-mm. ahead. Trying to plan anything nine months ahead is just, is a fool's folly because you things are going to change. Right. Business needs are going to change. Markets are going to change. Technology is going to change. You're, you're, Knowledge is going to change. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm going to try to do my best to know to deal with what I know could be a problem based off the the business that I have now. But I don't know what my business is going to be like two years from now. So, I can't really build for that.
0: I don't think you should let that stress you out or stop you from moving forward with things either. Oh, I never did. (laughs) Like, if you have a good idea, don't let being scared to scale stop you from moving forward with something. So if someone's starting something new right now, don't be so scared that you can't grow it to not move forward with it.
2: I, I'm just looking for validation that it's okay to use cockroach CockroachDB. Use it. Use it.
0: I mean, I feel He's like if it. you nuke the US, then it's, your database uh, is still going to be there, right? Isn't that it, what yeah. you said? Yeah. Europe that's still right. has your data. You're good.
1: Yeah, that's it. I'm good. Yeah. yeah, Just spend your innovation tokens on that.
3: There you go. <laughs> as long as you can get a dump of your data... You're not. You're not buying. You're not. You know. nothing's set in you're not stone. In, you're not locked
1: in. Yeah. Yeah. If it's relational
3: database, then yeah, you can move it. Exactly. All
1: right. Before we wrap things up, uh, let's tell people about our Patreon. Uh, we we have a Patreon, uh, and it is what? because of uh, the generous support of our patrons on Patreon that we don't have to do disingenuous sponsor ads and tell you how much Tim loves his uh, metal bikini. Avatar, Rage or, Shadow Legends, yeah. uh, <laughs> and we, we we're very thankful for the people that support us on Patreon because you guys it,
0: are amazing. It
1: helps us keep the show running and cover the costs, and uh, just w- makes us excited to come back and keep going. Um, And, of course, I would just want to mention anybody that supports us there gets our Discord invite, and at certain levels we have access to all of our new episodes as soon as they're done being edited and notes being written, and we have the after show like we were talking about and at the very top level after show is lit (laughs) last week's was awesome we did some bike shedding Uh, (laughs) it was great I was thinking do you guys think uh, we should publish like a special episode of the podcast just add it to our normal feed it'll just be like last week's after show to show
2: people uh, here's what what you're missing yeah this is
1: what you're missing this is what the after show is like
2: this is what you would get maybe like little snippets of different after shows like the best of right so they can get a little taste I like that idea okay yeah.
0: I have something to add to it, but we'll save it for the after show.
2: But I'll tell you who's enjoying the after show. Monty Chan, because he's a top. Monty Chan. Right.
0: <laughs> Monty, if I meet you him, legend. buying him a beer.
2: That's it. You legend you. Absolutely.
1: All right. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And don't forget to share the show with a friend because there's no better support than a word of mouth referral. Help the algorithms boost our signal by leaving us a review or rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think we've earned it, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Send us your topic suggestions on Twitter or Instagram at WorkingGoodPod. We'll catch you next week. And until then,
2: your heart matters.
0: You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.
2: I listen to the show. It's like I stammer. So I didn't realize how much I stammer. I start and then I'll stop and I try to find a word and then I back I up. Too.
0: I don't I, notice it.
2: I, really?
1: It's, it's no, funny because... I,
0: I notice my likes and whatever's. Like, like,
1: uh, we're whatever. all our worst oh. critic when yeah. I when I edit the thing. I hear every single pause where I'm um, trying yeah. to think of the next words. Yeah, you um, um
2: and I my... I will go uh, and you, well, you know, uh, yeah, uh, I, 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 I'll do that <laughs> until I find the word. I'm looking for a specific word. Yeah. We're
0: just gonna when you do that, we're just going to start throwing out random words,
2: <laughs>
1: nothing
0: go. associated to what you're talking about, though.
2: Okay.
1: All right. Well, we've been going for well over an hour now. We should uh, wow thirty minute over.
0: goal, huh? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, let's uh, let's move over to the after show so that we can get Ben off to bed on time or Absolutely. close to it on time.
0: May so I go pee first.
1: Yeah, sure. While Carol is peeing, I'm oh, going to tell okay. everybody about our Patreon.
0: <laughs> I'll wait. <laughs> that was just awkward.
2: All right, I'll cut that. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're a grown woman. You never have to ask permission for that.
1: (laughs) Tim just walks away. You don't have
2: to ask permission to do anything. Tim just
1: leaves. Remember, guys, your your heart 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 matters. matters. That's terrible. I
0: don't know if you'll be
1: able to sing that. If it's bad, I'll just use Tim's.